Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, September 27th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, a Homeland Security effort to combine requirements has stalled. Plus, not just a disease of the 80s, AIDS still gets federal attention. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Veterans Affairs is laying out some of its plans if Congress triggers a government shutdown later this week. VA says it can minimize a shutdown's impact on veterans, but not completely avoid it. Meanwhile, VA is taking back bonuses it gave to career executives. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Jory, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. So what do we know about the VA shutdown plan so far? Well, at this point, we don't have the full picture just yet. As of recording, we haven't seen the VA give an update to its contingency plans that we've seen from agencies as we are leading up to a possible government shutdown at the end of this week. More than 50 agencies have updated those contingency plans. Just a playbook of what happens and what doesn't happen if there is a government shutdown. The VA last updated theirs in September of 2021, but we did hear directly from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough last week. He told reporters that the VA is drawing up its list of employees who would be accepted during a shutdown. They would keep working during the shutdown, albeit they'd have to wait until the end of that shutdown to receive their pay. But This is a situation where McDonough says veterans will see little disruption at the VA during a shutdown. In the case of a shutdown, there would be no impact on veteran health care. Burials would continue at VA national cemeteries. VA would continue to process and deliver benefits to veterans, including compensation, pension, education, and housing benefits. And the board would continue to process appeals. Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough. So what would be impacted during a government shutdown, if not health care? What else? Yeah. So the what else here is things that include VA's outreach to veterans when there are you know things happening in their lives that they can have the VA step in and help with. That includes career counseling and transition assistance for those new veterans, those who are just about ready to leave the military and are looking to see what options are available for them in civilian life here. And this is a challenging time for those services to be potentially curtailed during a government shutdown because the VA at this very moment is trying to step up its outreach efforts, particularly to veterans who are targets to scammers and fraudsters trying to take advantage of those benefits that they're eligible for. VA recently launched a new page on its website specifically to get that outreach out there for veterans. Kate, keep them aware of the latest fraud efforts that are out there. This is particularly of note because the latest wave of scams are really going after the PACT Act benefits that veterans are getting. Veterans who, during their military service, were exposed to toxic substances are are now getting expanded benefits and health care as a result of all of this. At this recent press conference with McDonough, we also heard from VA Deputy Chief of Staff Maureen Elias. She said that, again, this is particularly relevant given the PACT Act element of things and that 
fraudsters generally go where the money is. We don't have specific numbers or data on that, but we have received plenty of anecdotal information. Anytime there's new benefits or, or new money that's being allocated to individuals, there's an opportunity for fraudsters and scamsters to come in. And that's VA Deputy Chief of Staff Maureen Elias. And we're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman about what could happen to Veterans Affairs if there is indeed a shutdown. So what's the latest on VA's return to office plans in the midst of all of this? Yeah, we've known for a while now that VA has stepped up its expectations for employees to come back to the office this fall. Uh, We do now have a date of when that's supposed to take effect. That's going to be October 8th. We heard that from McDonough. The specifics there, VA announced this way back in May that under this new policy, like so many other agencies that we're hearing from, employees in the National Capital Region that have had telework agreements in place, Starting October 8th, they are expected to work in the office a minimum of five days in the office each two-week pay period. McDonough, the way he has pointed it out, is that he wants employees in the office as much time as they're teleworking. He has sat down in the V cafeterias anytime he is in D.C., and he's been hearing concerns from employees trying to tailor this in a way that is as painless as possible for those employees. But again, one thing to keep in mind here, especially on the healthcare side of things, a lot of VA employees have not had the opportunity to telework since the COVID-19 pandemic even was a, a thing that was going on. And speaking of pain, there are some at the upper echelons that are experiencing some. Why is the VA taking back some of the bonuses it paid out to career executives? Yeah, so the VA's concern here is that this bonus may have gone to more career executives than were eligible for. And as a result, the the VA is kind of doing some damage control here, trying to get a better sense of who was eligible and who wasn't. The VA has the VA has curtailed about ten million dollars worth of these bonuses that went out to 170 career executives. Earlier this month, the VA did a full review. They found that these bonuses that, again, were set out under the PACT Act as critical skill incentives, the idea being that people that are in possession of skills that are very valuable to the VA, they want to keep them around, and the money is a good way to keep them around. As a part of that review, the VA found that some of these executives were not eligible for these bonuses, and so they are trying to figure out Again, who is actually eligible for this and who is not? It remains unclear whether the VA will re-award some of these bonuses to the executives who are impacted. But the VA is quick to point out that the vast majority of these bonuses, these critical skill incentives, went to employees who were eligible. About 97% of these bonuses did go to employees like HR specialists, VA police officers, and housekeeping aides. Bonuses are ripe for political anger, and I imagine that VA's congressional overseers had something to say about the matter. Oh, yeah, you can bet. We heard from the Senate VA committee chairman, John Tester, on this. He was upset about the news of this. He said that it's unacceptable that any of these resources were misused or directed toward senior executives who didn't meet the appropriate criteria to receive these bonuses. You can well imagine there'll be some additional scrutiny from Congress on this effort because the PACT Act was a very big deal in terms of the scope of what VA could do under that legislation. A lot of spending resources put into that legislation and lawmakers really want to make sure that the VA is a good steward of those funds going forward. 
All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, not just a disease of the 80s, AIDS still gets federal attention. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. It's no longer the relentless killer it was 40 years ago, but HIV is still around and still infecting people. And it remains a focus of the Health and Human Services Department, in particular the Health Resources and Services Administration. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got an update from the director of the Division of Policy and Data for HRSA's HIV AIDS Bureau, Michael Carfin. And as we speak, the nation is observing a particular day, isn't it? Correct. September 27th is National Gay Men's HIV Awareness Day. While we consider every day HIV Awareness Day, on September 27th, we make the point to raise awareness about HIV stigma, encourage HIV prevention and treatment among gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men. And although HIV potentially can infect anyone, it is still that population you just described that gets most of the cases, fair to say? So it is correct to say that HIV can affect anyone, uh, but about half of the people with HIV are gay or bisexual men who have sex with men. And that somewhat stems from the origins of the epidemic here in the United States. But we have a very diverse epidemic. And so our message is, while today are focusing on uh, gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men, we still encourage everyone to get tested, know their status. And if they are HIV positive, to connect with care and treatment to live a long and productive life. And as we said at the outset, HIV doesn't necessarily need to lead to the killer, which is AIDS, correct? I mean, it sounds like that is largely under control. What is the status? So that is correct. We've made tremendous advances in medical treatment. Today, you can take one pill a day to be able to treat your HIV. And we know from the Ryan White HIV AIDS program that about 90% of the people who are enrolled in our program actually achieve viral suppression, which is our goal, because then the virus is considered undetectable. And what we have learned through science is that undetectable means that you cannot transmit the virus sexually to your partner. We also call that undetectable equals untransmittable. Got it. And you mentioned the program at HRSA. What is the program officially and how does it work? So the program is the Ryan White HIV AIDS program. We're now in our 33rd year of being able to serve people with HIV and those affected by HIV in the nation. We serve about half of all the people, 576,000 people who are, are living with HIV in the United States. And we offer a comprehensive system of care from medical treatment and medications to also support services like care coordination, nutrition, transportation, housing assistance, and other needs that individuals with HIV can live very high quality, well-being, uh, and achieve their individual success. 
And you mentioned that there are drugs now available. In fact, I think you see them advertised on television. You know, every drug in the world seems to be advertised on television these days during the newscasts at night, and I'm old enough to still watch them. But are these affordable in general, or these are not super expensive types of things? What has been the advance in the uh, medicine and the treatment side that makes it affordable? So the, the medication has gone through various different formulations in ways that can make it very simple and easy for people to take. We now even have something called a long-acting injectable, which means you can get one shot a month, and that's all you need to do in order to treat your HIV. So the medications are covered under all health insurance plans. Also, of course, are the public health insurance plans like Medicaid and Medicare. But if someone doesn't have insurance or is underinsured. The Ryan White HIV AIDS program does provide medication assistance. We call it the AIDS Drug Assistance Program to ensure that anyone who needs it can have access to these life-saving medications. And to that point, what we've known from these advances in medications that if somebody is diagnosed with HIV, they can live a standard lifespan if they are taking their medication every day and are uh, seeing their medical providers on a regular basis and taking advantage of the supports that they need. We're speaking with Michael Carfin. He's director of the Division of Policy and Data for the HIV AIDS Bureau at the Health Resources and Services Administration, part of HHS. And let me ask you this, uh, between the infection and the onset of a disease which could be, I guess, still potentially fatal, What's the mechanism by which people can discover an infection and therefore get these modern medicines that will keep it suppressed and, in effect, disappear? So testing is the way to do that and to test on a regular basis which is at least once a year, we recommend testing. So there's many different ways to get tested through your medical provider, through community-based testing locations, and even now there's home testing available to determine your status. And we've now taken this new approach, which we call status neutral, which is a approach where you start with the test and then you learn what your status is. So if you're HIV negative, then we encourage you to look at prevention options such as pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, which is the taking of an HIV medication once a day, safe, easy to use, and that prevents you from getting HIV. And if your result is you're HIV positive, then we want to connect you right away to care, including as much as starting your treatment that very same day, because the medications are so safe and so effective that we can start you that same day that you learn your diagnosis to get on your treatment. And over the years, has the approach that the United States took in the federal government granting and health research apparatus, which is pretty big, took to develop these drugs that are now, as you say, widely available and work quite well and are safe. What have been the lessons learned that can transfer to other viral types of diseases? Because it looks like whatever is going on with the COVID virus, which I imagine is an utterly different branch of virology than the HIV virus, but are there any lessons learned that can transfer here? Well, actually, there are, in fact, 
One of the reasons why we were able to get a COVID vaccine so quickly is because many of the researchers working on it were part of what was known as the HIV Vaccine Trials Network, which is run by the National Institutes of Health. So we already had a research platform here in the United States that could look at options around addressing viruses. In fact, that trials network is working on an HIV vaccine. And then there's also NIH is supporting trials that are going on right now on a cure. And so while we remain optimistic that and encouraged that this science could lead us to that, to that point of having a vaccine and or a cure, we also believe that we have the tools today in order to achieve what we call the end of the HIV epidemic. In fact, we have a, a national initiative called Ending the HIV Epidemic in the U.S. And with the combination of these terrific medications that uh, with somebody with HIV, it means they suppress the virus to undetectable and medications that can prevent someone getting HIV, that combination will enable us to make HIV rare and to have anyone living with HIV to live a full and healthy life. And HRSA is a key part of that initiative. We've supported 49 different jurisdictions in the country, which represent about half of all the new HIV cases in the United States. And so we believe that many of the lessons that we've learned from the Ryan White HIV AIDS program can be transferred to communities across the country and even intensified in areas that we mean we can uh, accelerate our efforts towards ending the epidemic. And a final question, it's still an epidemic in other parts of the world. And what demand do you have for learning and knowledge you know, from some of the nations that still suffer from it in a much greater degree than the United States does now. HIV has, is still very much present uh, globally. Uh, of course, we've been very fortunate to have programs like PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which has been uh, made tremendous advances in, uh, in getting access to HIV medications in, uh, in countries across the world. Um, and that kind of uh, collaborative effort, which is also a hallmark of the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, which is what we partner with community-based organizations and states and cities, that same uh, premise has been part of PEPFAR and the Global Fund and, and other efforts that uh, are making sure that people have access to medications, that they have access to medical care, uh, and the services that they need to support themselves in making sure that they, they are able to take that medication and be able to lead productive lives. Michael Carfin is director of the Division of Policy and Data for the HIV AIDS Bureau at the Health Resources and Services Administration. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, one DMV rep's view of the ongoing shutdown showdown. But first, a Homeland Security effort to combine requirements has stalled. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.
Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. A Homeland Security Department initiative called the Joint Requirement Council hasn't gone very far in 10 years. The council is supposed to discover capabilities that multiple DHS components have in common to avoid duplication and redundancy. But according to the Government Accountability Office, it doesn't meet very often, and no one at the top seems to pay any attention. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions, Travis Masters. Tell us what this Joint Requirements Council specifically is supposed to do. It was formed in relation to a GAO recommendation back in 2014. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Actually, it goes even further back than 2014. The JRC was established in 2003, not too long after the Department of Homeland Security became a department and didn't really function at the time, didn't have management support and kind of died on the vine. In the 2008 timeframe, we made a recommendation it should be reestablished. It was in that 2014 timeframe that they reestablished the Joint Requirements Council and began to put policies and processes in place for the Joint Requirements Council to review capability requirements for the various components within the Department of Homeland Security to do, as you said, identify those areas where they have commonality, things that they could find some efficiencies by pursuing jointly, and then make those recommendations to the leadership at DHS to then combine those and fund those jointly to satisfy multiple needs. And so that's really the intended function you know, since 2016, roughly 2018, that's sort of what they've been attempting to do. And that's what this report was looking at. And what they're supposed to try to avoid is redundancy in acquisitions. In other words, go to maybe a shared acquisition or a shared services type of model for those capabilities or requirements they have in common. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, the duplication, two different components pursuing the same solution is not an efficient way uh, to do business. And so, The hope is that this council can help the department's components identify those areas where they could gain those efficiencies. So an example might be, say, unmanned aerial vehicles, which Customs and Border Protection might need, the Coast Guard might need, FEMA might even need them for maybe different purposes, but it would be the same functional technology. Yeah, that's correct. That is a good example. Well, have they identified any the last few years anyhow? Yes. So in this report, we we went back to 2018. That was the scope of the assessment. And we found that there were five different areas where they identified some joint capability opportunities. And we took a look at kind of the process that JRC went through to analyze those various joint documents. And we found that largely, you know, the documents didn't fully meet the requirements process Uh, It's not requirements in one sentence, right? But that the requirements process uh, says they should. In other words, in establishing a joint requirement, they have a process to do that to make sure that it really fully vetted. Yeah, that's correct. So the, the Joint Requirements Council, as they review these documents, are supposed to look at certain aspects of the document. Things like, you know, does the document state the the capability need clearly? Does the planned capability that's stated actually address, you know, a validated need? And one of the areas where they lacked the most was in the area of actually quantifying capability gaps. So doing the actual quantitative analysis, or at least providing that analysis in the documents, there were three documents that we looked at that uh, did not fully meet that requirement. And so they had some analysis in there, but it wasn't to the standard that the policy uh, would require. 
So only five even looked at in the past five or six years. And what are the capabilities that they feel that they might have in common? What are they? Yeah, so those five are uh, counter unmanned aircraft systems. So I'm a good guesser. Yeah, well done. No, actually, Uh, I read your report. uh, (laughs) DHS Tactical Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Network. So a network, persistent wide area maritime surveillance immigration data integration, and the enterprise analytics services and processes. Those were the five areas. We're speaking with Travis Masters, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the GAO. So clearly they have to do their paperwork and do their documentation better, and that's one of your recommendations. But before we get to those, I wanted to ask you, how much attention does this council get from top leadership at DHS, who you would presume should be interested in what the JRC is coming up with? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And over the years, as I noted earlier, you know, they haven't really gotten a lot of attention. When the council was first established in the early 2000s, that was one of the reasons it did not succeed. There wasn't a lot of management attention. The same is true now. The deputies management group, that's the point organization for the JRC to report to, and the JRC are supposed to interact with each other on a regular basis, providing direction and guidance. And then The JRC then would provide recommendations for funding and and prioritization of requirements. And that interaction just hasn't been happening. And it goes both ways. Both organizations have not interacted with each other like they should. And that was one of our primary findings and led to a recommendation that they should establish an annual process for ensuring these interactions take place. It gets back to the fundamental problem in government is there is no budget for donuts. And so nobody has good (laughs) meetings. And what about the idea, too, that you've identified that they want to make that the people on the council or DHS leadership would change to whom that council reports from a notch to a notch lower than it reports now? Yeah, that's correct. So that was one of our recommendations as well. So so DHS is planning to move the Joint Requirements Council from its current location where it reports directly to the Undersecretary for Management. So it has a relatively independent position, which provides it some authority and the ability to affect things if, in fact, they're having those meetings and moving the information, as we just discussed, to another position lower than that and put it under the uh, Chief Readiness Support Officers organization within DHS. And that organization, when we looked across, if they were going to move it under an organization, that was probably the least relevant one to put it under. And the DHS folks actually did some analysis, too, that the team discovered and talked to them about where their analysis found a similar thing. It, It was not the highest Uh, or the best location for this. But they're moving it there. Uh, And our concern is that they'll lose their independence and maybe even whatever pull they have. Right. So GAO's opinion is that they need more autonomy and a little bit more authority and influence, not less, the JRC. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So you've recommended, you know, they do their documentation and identify and quantify the actual requirements better that would be joint, and also that they meet, at least, and get together and talk about things at least once a year. I would think they'd want to talk about it monthly, but that's just me. Uh, What are your other chief recommendations here? So those are two big ones. Uh, We want the JRC and the Deputies Management Action Group, as I mentioned, to, to meet regularly. That's a big one. The other two really are related to your last point about the movement of the organization within the management structure. We want them to reconsider this move of the JRC under the 
chief readiness support officer. And we want them also to take a look at the JRC staffing and whether or not they have the appropriate number of people with the appropriate skills within that joint requirements council. DHS concurred with all of our recommendations, but the plan for those final two, the move of the organization and the workforce issues, uh, they plan to do the reassessment after they move the organization. And our recommendations were pretty clear that those should be done prior to making the move so that the analysis that supports those could be in hand as they make those final decisions. Because when you really think about it, one that is observing DHS could come up with a bunch of ideas for joint requirements. I can think of cloud computing, for example, like the Defense Department has been struggling and now they're finally there with that. Or on financial management, there's a lot of information technology and services that clearly the components could share. So it seems like there's plenty of ideas. They just need to get their act together. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There there are other ways that this could be done potentially. Our key point, though, for that would just simply be that we want to make sure that the direction they go will allow the JRC to maintain independence and have that direct influence uh, in order to be able to function the way it's intended to, to you know, help prioritize joint requirements uh, so that those needs get met across the department. Travis Masters is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, one DMV rep's view of the ongoing shutdown showdown. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The back and forth continues on whether there will be some sort of government shutdown by the end of the week. Members of Congress continue to try and find some resolution that either everyone can live with or few enough people can't. To gain some insight on what's happening, Federal Drive host Tom Temin had a chance to speak with Virginia Democrat Don Beyer, whose district contains several federal employees that could be affected. All right. So you are on the Democratic side. And so you have a yes, very different view. Democrat of the, from Virginia. Yep. And you have a very different view of the world, you know, from some of the Republicans. And they're divided among themselves. What could possibly resolve this? Can anybody move? Does only one side have to move? Do you all have to move? I mean, how do you look at it? Uh, Well, I think it's pretty clear that Kevin McCarthy has tried many different ways already to get uh, a consensus in his caucus. And really, that doesn't mean a majority of his caucus. He's got to get almost every one of them. Uh, Because if he only gets, if he misses five or six or seven, that's the margin that he has with Democrats. That's why he's been unable to bring a lot of bills to the floor in the last 10 days. But there is an easy solution, and that's to go back just a few months to our almost shutdown over the debt ceiling. And when Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden negotiated a deal about what the top line spending levels would be for fiscal year 2024. And everyone sacrificed. A lot of people voted no from the right and the left because they weren't happy with the compromise. But it was a compromise. It did pass both houses. It was signed by the president. It said fiscal year 2024 will have the same top line numbers that fiscal year 2023 had. I know inflation has been as high as 
9% during the, this last year and as low as three, but certainly it's going to cost a lot more to run government. So it's a big moving backwards. Virtually every Democrat would vote for that budget. I think many Republicans would. That's what's coming out of the Senate. That's the deal. It's pretty clear. It seems like, though, that if you just going from a mathematical basis, if all the Democrats and just you don't need that many more of the Republicans to get it passed in the House, you don't need two thirds. No, no, you don't. But you do need to be able to get the bill onto the floor. Right. And there there's no automatic way to bring a bill to the floor other than to do something called a discharge petition where a majority of the House, 218 people have to sign their name in a little book. And when 218 is hit, then it starts a clock. And over the next couple of days, the speaker has to bring that bill to the floor for a vote. It's rarely been used. I think the last time successfully, the only time in my nine years there was over the uh, Export-Import Bank that everyone was for except for the chairman of the Republican House Financial Services Committee. And because he was a chairman, he held it up. And we had to get, literally go around him to do the discharge petition to get the vote on the floor. And then it passed easily. Right. And so then that becomes the political problem that Kevin McCarthy has, which, you know, it's really outside of anybody's control except him and his that piece of the caucus there that, uh, yeah, that yeah. has that sort yeah. of Damocles over his head. We, we all talk about how the thing that Speaker Kevin McCarthy is afraid of is that if he compromises or is seen to compromise, that they will do something called a motion to vacate the chair, where basically they say, we're going to vote to throw you out. My instinct is that that motion wouldn't be successful anyway, that he has nothing to fear. But I, I guess when the motion is, should we keep our speaker or not, he's afraid that his speakership might be short-lived. Right. Okay. Let's talk about the shutdown from the governmental standpoint. I mean, we've all lived through these things. My first experience with a federal shutdown was during the Clinton administration. And I think up till then, it had been a long time. And now they seem to be regular occurrences. And yeah, and then, Tom, I'd point out that every time it's been in a Congress controlled by the Republicans. And with Newt Gingrich, twice with Donald Trump, now driven by the Freedom Caucus and Kevin McCarthy's Republican House. Just just a comment. Right. Well, okay, yeah. On this show, we, we, we don't take sides, but we... we I, know, I, I but know that, we don't, but... But that is a fact. the difference that, you know, I'm trying to be fair. Writ large, um, Democrats are there because we want government to be, to work, to be good government, to take people, advance our country. And Republicans are largely there because they want to you know, keep things the way they were. They're the champions of the status quo, and they don't necessarily like government. Um, they they quote all the time, the, the government, that government governs best, that governs least. So it's very different perspectives than on spending within government. Well, that gets to the question that seems to be the real one that's underlying this, and it's by proxy over the relatively small portion of the budget, maybe a quarter of actual spending that is represented by the discretionary budget that doesn't seem to be able to be passable at the moment. And that is the rising interest rates, therefore raising the amount of federal outlays to do the debt service of a deficit and therefore set of public debt that is rising. I mean, it's trillions and $30 trillion and so on. And the entitlement spending is runaway. 
again, this is not to say it's good, bad, or here's what we should do about it, but could they possibly be using this as a way to get maybe Congress in a much larger sense to look at the fact that Treasury takes in $2 trillion a year and $6 trillion a year go as outlays or something like that? Yeah, yeah. You put your finger. It's a little complicated, but it's also pretty straightforward. You know, we are spending roughly 20% of GDP every year on federal government spending, and we're raising about 16, 16.5% in terms of taxes. So that 4 or 5% difference is our, is our deficit. And the way you address it, number one, is you make sure that people that owe taxes pay it. Right now, you and I have a 1099 or a W-2, 99% of our taxes are paid fairly and on time. If, you, if your income is not coming that way, if it's coming through a trading stock or selling big businesses, less than half of the actual owed taxes are paid. Um, with I have a couple of bills with Elizabeth Warren, with Steve Cohen and others to have a tax on people with net incomes greater than $50 million a year, a surtax on people making two million, more than $2 million a year. Won't affect their lives at all, but it would close that gap. And then, Tom, the hard part is the those automatic spending, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and this on the debt, is 80% of the budget. Right. Another 10% is our defense budget, which no one wants to touch. That means we have to find all the savings we want in the last 10%. And that's everything else, State Department, Department of Energy, Department of Education, Customs and Border Patrol, all those things that are really important. Somehow you have to you know, make cuts that affect a huge budget on just the last 10 percent. Yes. And that seems to be that's not really possible. No, no, it's not, which is why some of the, the things they're throwing out are all dead on arrival in the Senate. And they'd be dead on arrival with the American public if they ever got that far. Right. So therefore, what do we do long term here? Because well, that that's a really it's a really important question. Uh, and, and it's really interesting The the Republicans really at the behest of Donald Trump have said we're not allowed to look at Medicare, Medicaid or Social Security. But we should. John Larson, a member of Congress from Connecticut, Democrat, for years has had a bill called Social Security 2100 that would fix Social Security through the end of the century. We just have to put it on the floor, and, and I think it would pass. On Medicare, 31% of our Medicare budget is just dialysis, end-stage renal disease. We're not going to fix that overnight, but we need to address obesity in America. There's so much sugar, so many processed foods that that are driving up something that doesn't have to be there. Th- those are decisions that we sadly make, On even on Medicaid. Medicaid is basically being being given to people that are low income, the working poor. It's not that hard to imagine an economy where we lift wages everywhere so that we don't have working poor. We actually have a middle class again. And that would drive our Medicaid budget way, way down. There are structural things we can do that would, would give us big surpluses in the years to come. Instead, we're trying to pick on, you know, let's, let's zero out NASA <laughs> or, or the Department of Energy and, and try to do it that way. And with respect to just getting back to the tax issue, I mean, since Michael Dukakis ran for president, that was one of his premises. Let's tax the people that aren't paying what they call fair share. But you have a tax code, and the tax code is supposed to reflect fair share. And so, I mean— And, and, and it clearly doesn't. And in the number, we have 735 billionaires in America, and their average tax rate last year was 8%. 
I promise you, uh, yours and mine is probably somewhere in the mid-30s. What's your message to federal employees who have got to live with this, who are, most, oh. for the most part, dedicated public servants that just want to go to work? Well, first, God bless you and thank you. And, and I'm so sorry that you're having to put up with this, that th- this sort of Damocles, this anxiety hanging over your head that we may shut down in just a couple of days. You know, ultimately, you federal employees will get paid, but you're not going to get paid right away. And I don't know who's going to pay your mortgage or, or your child care bill or put groceries on the table. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being resilient. And for the contract uh, federal contract workers, of whom there are many, many, um, they're never going to get paid. And, and they're just, um, we're throwing them under the bus. And it's, it's very sad. So uh, all, all I can tell you is we will try to do everything we possibly can to pump up the nonprofits and state and local governments to try to get you through this. Congressman Don Beyer represents Virginia's 8th District. As always, great speaking with you. Thank you very much, Tom. It's wonderful to talk to you. Good luck. House Representative Don Beyer represents Virginia's 8th District. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. But first, enrollees in the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program, or FELTSIP, are bracing for a big premium increase starting in 2024. The Office of Personnel Management announced plans to hike up premium rates for current enrollees. OPM is not sharing an average, but Federal News Network has learned at least some of the data here. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins us with more. Drew, how are you doing? I'm fine, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what are the premium increases that you're seeing? So there is quite a range here, Eric, but the highest number that I've seen, at least from a couple of different accounts of enrollees in FELTSIP, is 86%. So that is a massive increase that FELTSIP enrollees will see to their premium rates starting in 2024. Some of the other numbers I've seen just based on data that I collected, as well as data from the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, couple other numbers there are 77% premium rate increase, 49% premium rate increase. So as you can see, they're really across the board here. This is the first time in seven years that Feldspin Rollies will have a premium increase here. There's about 267,000 enrollees in the long-term care insurance program. These are civilian federal employees and military members. And, you know, this is obviously a massive increase. And uh, groups such as NARF and others have kind of raised a couple of concerns about the growing rates as well. Yeah, I can imagine massive is an understatement there. Why are they so high and why is this happening now? Is it because there hasn't been an increase in so long? So typically what happens is that OPM will renew its contract with the for the program about every seven years. So that's when you see the premium rates go up. The contractor for the FELTSIP program is John Hancock, and they have since the program was created, the long term care insurance program was created back in 2000. John Hancock has maintained that contract and renewed it every seven years with OPM. So there have been massive spikes in the premiums as well. Back in 2016, there was an average 83% increase in the premiums. 
And as well as in 2016, there we saw another premium rate increase in 2009, where there was uh, an average increase of 17%. So if you compare this to maybe the FEHB program that has, you know, two, three, four percent generally premium rate increases, this is much higher. But of course, it's not happening every year. It's happening every seven years. OPM on its website, they described, you know, the frequency and duration of claims, the expected lifespan of enrollees, the length of time that enrollees are expected to keep their coverage. These are all reasons that those premium rates can change. And that's, you know, those things can change over time, of course. So that is part of the reason behind why the premiums are increasing. But it is uh, quite a big number. And, And of course, although OPM shared averages in the past, they didn't this time around. Yeah, it may not enjoy having to be the bearer of bad news there. Uh, How is OPM trying to manage the high rates? So one thing that they have tried to do to to try to help enrollees here is to increase the premium rates over the course of several years. So for example, the premium increase, part of that percentage will go up for 2024, but you won't see that full. So for example, if your premium is going up by 86%, as I said at the top, you won't see that 86% increase until 2026. So they are kind of delaying it or trying to do it in phases, but eventually you will hit that big number at the end. Another thing that OPM has done here, because they do recognize that there is, you know, these are quite large increases, they have paused new enrollments into the FELTSIP program. So the program is paused for people to enroll in it for the next two years, and OPM can extend that by the end of, of when that would be. That would last until December 2024 for now. And those are a couple of ways that they're trying to do it, but there are still concerns from both federal organizations and the enrollees themselves here. Yeah, let's bring the focus back to the enrollees. I'm curious if you were able to speak with any of them about this experience and what they had to say about it. I did get the chance to speak directly to a Feltsman enrollee, and he told me that his current monthly rate for the program is about seventy-six dollars by twenty twenty-six. So after you see those phases go through of the the rate increases, he'll be spending one hundred and forty-two dollars per month. And you know, it's not just these kind of immediate impacts that you'll see. And of course, beyond the immediate impacts, there are more long-term impacts as well. So enrollees, in light of the premium rate increases, they can either choose to go with a higher number or they can opt to reduce their coverage to maintain the same uh, monthly rate. So in this instance, for this enrollee that I spoke to, even though if he chose to reduce his benefits and maintain that same premium rate, which is one of the options you can have, eventually, by the time he's in his 60s, the amount that he would get from the program for long-term care would be fall far below where you see the average cost of long-term care. So there is a, a challenge there as well. Even if you can reduce the premium rate, it's maybe not necessarily in everyone's best interest to do so. What other options do felt enrollees have? So as I kind of mentioned, they can either take on the higher premium rate, which again will take place over a couple of years. They can also take the option to take lower coverage and maintain about equal premium to what they have now. There is a third option where you can do a middle of the road approach. If you reach out to OPM, enrollees can choose to fall somewhere between and, you know, kind of adjust the premium somewhere in the middle between what it would be to maintain the same coverage 
versus reducing coverage and kind of find a middle ground there. But Eric, it is not yet clear how many enrollees will choose which option to reduce their coverage here. If we look back to the 2016 numbers, there were about 96,000 Feltzman enrollees. So somewhere between a half and a third chose to keep their premiums the same by reducing insurance benefits. So there could be a very large number of Feltzman enrollees here who do choose that, that option. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Freeman, thank you so much for the insight. Thanks, Eric. And if you're an enrollee looking for more information, you can find more of Drew's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates on everything government shutdown, you can check out our government shutdown resource page. Go to federalnewsnetwork.com and search government shutdown. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.